in case you missed it on Newsbreak. Is this the beginning of summer? I don't know, but it certainly feels that way in Durban. Bright and breezy, sun is shining, a nice cool breeze to welcome you. Hope you're enjoying your Sunday. Well, I'm here now to bring you a bit more um, of a conversation, a bit more of an information overload here as we talk about another crucial issue this Sunday on News Break Talk. I'm Tadej Haripashad. Welcome to the program. It's where you get to give your views a voice and we look forward to hearing your thoughts today. We're doing a multi-pronged approach to a very important issue that was highlighted yesterday. Um, it came as a result of many of you saying that this needs to be spoken about a lot more. So today we decided to take the conversation forward, take it further and of course put it to your attention and see what you've got to say about it. Now a report was done um, and this was um, shocking in its nature. Uh, the uh, Hlanganisa Institute of Development in Southern Africa um, came up with the report and what they found was that um, there were increased, increased incidents of violence, gender-based violence, sexual abuse, sexual harassment of domestic workers. The research, in fact, found that four interviewees mentioned cases of rape or sexual assault. In other cases, domestic workers were shown pornography, forced to touch employers and assaulted sexually. The research found that gender-based violence experienced in the domestic work sector also included male employers. So this is definitely a shocking, shocking case that we're talking about here. It's something that has um, really got, I think, the nation talking. And so we wanted to shed some light on this, focus on this and and, and discuss it. And I think interestingly enough, um, it really speaks of a time um, that we often read about, we attend lectures about, and I think we curate opinions about about the kind of fate that the woman of 1860, the Indian woman, the indentured labourer of 1860, uh, the plight she faced at the hands of the colonial colonial um, employers. Many committed suicide, many had to flee their homes, many were shunned and outcast by their husbands and families for being victims of sexual abuse and sexual uh, assault by the white um, bosses, if you could call them that, at the time. So we're going to spend the second half of the program then talking about that dynamic and the build-up to the uh, 160-year celebration of the arrival of Indians in South Africa. So definitely a conversation that's uh, hard-hitting. It's, it's a bit grisly. It's a bit sad. I will caution you at this point, the nature of the topic is um, largely sensitive. So um, we do encourage um, sensitive people to, you know, apply a a certain degree of discretion when when listening to this conversation but it is something that cannot be swept under the carpet. So we are joined on the line by Bongiwe Ndondo she's the executive director for the Hlanganisa Institute of Development in Southern Africa Bongiwe, thank you for your time we really appreciate it today um, Thank you for inviting us Pradesh and um, good afternoon to your listeners and um, you know it's, I'm sorry to be the deliverer of such, uh, you know, a uh, 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 shocking news. I think that's the thing. Hey? It's, it's it's really tragic to note that you know we we connect 
on uh, such harsh topics, on such um, sad realities of South Africa. But nonetheless, the awareness needs to be created. And hopefully this can go a long way in um, trying to address the problem and conscientize people about their rights and also make people aware about what is good and proper conduct. Um, and just also to, you know, to put it into a bigger sort of a capsule, um, these are examples of the gender-based violence that President Cyril Ramaphosa speaks about all the time. In virtually every address of his, he's talking about the gender-based violence levels in the country, the initiatives and interventions in this regard. And this is how it takes um, takes form on the ground. So I think it's important to identify these pockets of incidents so that the world and the society can understand um, what the world means when they want to take this fight against gender-based violence. Having send, said that, Bongiwe, talk to me about where this idea to investigate this started. Um, just to give you a context, so Tlanganisa Institute runs what we call the Joint Gender Fund. Um, which is a basket fund that aims to um, to reach out to community organizations that are working around gender-based violence and looking at how to prevent and mitigate it in their communities. Um, and the fund aims to strengthen that kind of work. And we recognize as a fund and an organization the alarming levels of uh, you know violence against women in South Africa. And we also um, recognize that you know, certain groups are disproportionately affected by gender-based violence, and domestic workers are one such group. So in light of that, we partnered with Easy Domestic Workers Alliance, which is a, 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 which is a formation of, you know, domestic workers coming together to address some of the challenges that they face. And you'll appreciate that, you know, domestic workers are, are quite a unique, uh, you know, group and, you know, are affected by a lot of different challenges, not less, you know, uh, labor relations issues, uh, you know, uh, interpersonal violence uh, in their workplaces, et cetera, et cetera. But sexual violence is one area that hasn't been um, given sufficient attention. And so as the Gen Gender Fund and working with Israel, we felt that, you know, there were a lot of cases that were being brought to the alliance's um, attention which related to domestic workers being sexually violated. Now, you'll appreciate that domestic workers work in isolation. They work in people's private homes. And, um, you know, quite often they don't have, you know, uh, job descriptions. You know, the way that you are, you know, a presenter or a a show host on the radio, you'll have a job description which provides you guidelines on what your work, what the scope of your work entails. But domestic workers often are thrown in and get to, you know, pick up after us, literally. So they get to do all the, you know, the, the house cleaning, the housekeeping, and, um, you know, with no proper structure to it on what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. So many times their scope of work is actually left to the employer's own discretion. And um, they are, further to that, we find that they are... Uh, 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 work involves them getting into very intimate spaces, you know. That some of them live on our property, some of them live in our houses, and, you know, getting into those intimate spaces leaves leave them quite vulnerable to sexual violence and sexual harassment. So I'm going to make an explicit distinction um, between sexual harassment and violence in this context. But sexual harassment is um, uh, arises because this is their workplace, right? So the same way if somebody made passes at you at Lotus 
um, you would be able to, you know, report them because that's, a, you know, without them necessarily violating you, they are harassing you. But with domestic workers, we're going beyond that. He's saying it's not just harassment from a, a, an, an employee and a, a work situation, right? It's also sexual violence and even exploitation in some cases. So in that environment does not have a human resource department, which is where any employee, uh, an employee in distress would go. And I like how you started and you used the word bosses. So I'm going to continue using the word bosses uh, after you and call them bosses. So they are bosses who uh, the report identifies as the main perpetrators of sexual violence and exploitation are the only recourse channel or mechanism that is available to them when these things happen, you know, uh, to them at the workplace. And so uh, often reporting means that you will lose your job, you know, because there isn't an independent body that is going to look at the merits of your case. It's you against your employer. And um, um, quite often, uh, because this, the violence happens uh, without, within these closed premises, there are no, you know, secondary witnesses. So it's your word against the employer's word. And most domestic workers know that it's often very difficult to prove these instances, you know, these uh, 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 incidences when they happen. So many of them just opt not to report, you know, because they fear losing their jobs. You know, they fear that, you know, their only source of livelihood will be taken away from them. And when they do go to report, um, often, you know, like many other, you know, uh, survivors of gender-based violence, you know, they are uh, victimized by law, law enforcement officers, you know, so they experience certain victimization. And not only that, you know, because many of them are undocumented migrants, unfortunately, our study showed us that, you know, uh, 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 the, the vast majority of domestic workers in this country are undocumented migrants. And that already subjects them to a further form of discrimination because yeah, we know yeah. how difficult it is to claim your rights in this country if you are an undocumented migrant. Yeah, and Mongiba, I see you talking there a lot about the, um, you know, dare I say, the, the secondary infrastructure of it. You know, should this happen, how do you report it? Uh, the fact that this is a violation of the legal system, it's a violation of human rights. But I want to bring it now a step forward and ask you, well, what are some of the cases you've had to deal with? What are some of the reports coming through from these domestic workers? So we had a vast, uh, you know, range of cases you know, um, ranging from, you know, domestic, you know, workers or employers, uh, uh, sorry, employers exposing their private parts to domestic workers, walking around the house naked because it is their house and, you know, they are feeling hot. But, you know, beyond that, you know, walking into the rooms that domestic workers use during their private time at any hour of the day or night because it is their properties and that's and that and, and that was the and that was the issue. The issue was, you know, this is my house, therefore I can go into any room that I want to go into. Some of these domestic workers, because they tend into little children, you know, share a room with these children. And so again, you know, employers find an opportunity to go in because they want to check on their children. So in the one instance, the 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 the, the one um, you know guy came home, you know, from a drink with after midnight. And he wants to say, you know, good night to his little girl. But this little girl is sharing a room with the domestic worker. And um, in that particular instance, he went on to fondle the domestic worker. In other cases, you know, employers would engineer opportunities, you know, to be with the domestic worker, to be at home with the domestic worker alone and make advances. 
In others, they would ask domestic workers to bring them something whilst they are in the shower, or, or some of them would even ask for, you know, explicitly ask for sex for extra pay. I mean, there was a case of, you know, one young man who, who asked for, uh, you know, a sexual favor from the domestic worker. And, you know, having offered the favor, he went on to ask the domestic worker to do the same in front of his friends. So it's, it's about power. It's about humiliation, you know. It's about, you know, uh, you know going back to the theme of, of your talk about, you know, uh, I own you. I have an, a sense of entitlement. You know, we're going back to the days of slavery where our servants, you know, the servant-master relationship was an ownership one. And that's what we, that's, we saw a lot of that. But there were other cases, you know, where, you know, the one domestic worker had, you know, uh, uh, her employer's son asked her not to wear knickers in the house while she's cleaning and further said, you know, um, uh, uh, and asked her to perform oral sex on him. And when she refused, you know, uh, uh, she lost her job ultimately uh, uh, because, of course, the family could not keep her any longer because that very delicate line had been crossed between you know, uh, their son and her. So domestic workers end up suffering double jeopardy because you report, you lose your job, you know. Either way, uh, a, a case of a domestic worker who had raised this young boy, you know, she said to us, you know, this. I started working for this family before this boy was born, and uh, for all intents and purposes, I regard him as my son, you know. Even horrific. I mean, this is these are just horrific stories, Bungue. You know, or even a grandchild. And then, you know, he turns around and says he wants a sexual favor from me. So it was really, you know, shocking, shocking things. I mean, there's other instances, you know, where, you know, uh, workers uh, touch their breasts, you know, spank their bottoms. There were instances of, you know, stalking them on social media, et cetera, et cetera. But all of these amount to gross, you know, sexual violation and exploitation. Who do they raise it with then? Because like you say, a domestic worker oftentimes does not have the human resource infrastructure to provide them equitable employment rights. A lot of them are not documented. A lot of them are not registered. Like you mentioned, some of them are even foreign. So they just literally come knock on your door, say, please may I work? And you just have this verbal agreement that I'm going to pay you X amount of money. Um, and, and, and so ultimately then, you know, well, what do these domestic workers do? If they raise it with a family, chances are they could lose their job. If they go through to authorities, the question is, what proof do you have? So what has been the recourse for these domestic workers? Many of the domestic workers were still in these abusive relationships because they have just not had an exit strategy. Some of them had lost their jobs and some of them unfortunately also lost their family, you know, because when these things happen, you know, families tend to judge you, tend to look at you a certain way. And so one domestic worker had even lost, you know, her marriage, you know, once she, you know, brought to her husband's attention that, you know, she had, uh, she had been violated in this manner. So she lost her job, she lost her family, and uh, clearly lost her dignity um, in the process. You know, but there were a lot of other, you know, domestic workers who were bold enough to go and, you know, make a, a lodge a, a, a report with the police. But like I say, you know, our system is, is, is not equitable at all. So uh, it's your word against their word. They, have, they may have access to legal counsel, you know, you might not. So again, you know, it's, 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 
it, it really speaks to the inequality in our society and the issues around access to justice and what access to justice means for poor people. Maybe and, let and I think me that's offer, a whole, uh, th- that I takes. I want to mention something. So, yeah. most domestic workers were violated by male bosses. But in, those, in some of those households, there was also a female boss in the sense that this is uh, a family, uh, you know, and a couple. And whenever they reported, some of them opted to report to these female bosses. Some female bosses, you know, chose not to believe them, whether out of, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, genuinely not believing them or just uh, too embarrassed to admit that these incidents happened. But some of the female bosses very uh, might very well have believed them. But even in the cases where they were believed, the ultimate was that the domestic worker lost their job. Because even if you believe them, what do you do, you know, if you are, if you are the female uh, boss? Because a line has been crossed and, uh, you know, uh, the, the domestic worker, essentially it's very difficult to let the domestic worker continue on her job because, you know, it's, it's your space. It's, it's a private matter. It's, it's intimate space. You know, it's, it's, there's intimacy involved. So you, your desire is to break the two apart because, because of what has happened. So I think, you know, again, even when, when domestic workers chose to report to their bosses, they, they were still victimized ultimately. And, and I think in, in terms of your report then, you know, what are you prescribing? What are, what are you considering to be the way forward? I think there's a few things, uh, you know, we can think about. So the one is, how do we, you know, we are a, we are a society. Domestic workers are part of our society. So how we treat them is also a reflection on our own societal values. So I think there's things that we need to be interrogating as a society, and um, which is why I use the analogy of, ra- of, of slavery. You know, where, where, what, what does equity, equality, human dignity mean to us as a society when we treat one of our own the way we do? But beyond that, I think, you know, from at a practical level, I think there's a lot that government can do. You know, government can, um, the issue of domestic workers not having a job description, for instance, you know, there's got to be firmer guidelines around compelling employers to give domestic workers, you know, job descriptions that, you know, uh, uh, that govern the agreement between the employer and the employee so that when there's any matters of dispute, that can be a reference document. But, you know, beyond that, you know, what are some of the guidelines government can put in place around the live-in domestic workers? Because if I live on your property and sometimes even in your house, sometimes in the same room with a, a relative, whether it's a, a, an elderly, you know, a grandma, whether it's children, what are some of the guidelines we can put in place about the privacy of this uh, domestic worker? Because they are an employee at the end of the day, you know. So there's got to be some labor relations guidance that you know government can offer but i think we must also be thinking about how can we embolden domestic workers to report you know if we're saying the issues of uh, losing their job come in the way how can we help them through an an interim path transitional period you know uh, you know if they report and lose their job they can be assured that they can get some assistance to help them as they find another job or, you know, some sort of UIF, but it's a special type of UIF, I, w- I would argue. But how can we also 
you know, uh, uh, look at how, uh, you know, domestic workers can have access to an anonymous reporting line, you know, an an anonymous reporting uh, system that will just raise a flag. You know, we want to see a lot more by way of inspectorate from the Department of Labor. You know, domestic workers are intimidated by the institutions that are available to them for access to justice. But how can, you know, uh, inspectorates go out and find these domestic workers who are in need? And remember that domestic workers find it very difficult to organize because unlike factory workers, you know, who are in the same space, you know, from eight to five, can get together, talk about the issues that affect them. Domestic workers are in your house and in my house, Pradesh. So they don't have the time to be talking to their peers, you know, about the things that affect them. So their level of organization is very poor and even poorer when they are undocumented, right? So those are some of the recommendations the report came up with. Mm. So let's go to some uh, of our WhatsApp messages here. I think it would be interesting for you to understand what the public is saying about what we're talking about. And uh, we've got Ramba Mudli in Phoenix says, Good afternoon. It's appalling um, in the 21st century for this ugly behavior to still happen. Thank you for bringing this news to us. Anonymous says, Realistic concern is not a shocker. If many leaders are accused of this, humans are great copycats. I hope the death penalty could be the ultimate discipline. Zakira from Johannesburg says, Thank you for this much-needed discussion. The timing is appropriate. It's Navratri. I light a lamp for every Mataji, Sita and Devi. You are the Lakshmi through the world. Though the world steals your light, Lady Kali, you fight back with your might. Thank you, Zakira. I think powerful, powerful... um, message there. Zahid Danbar of Phoenix says there are some absolutely beyond good bosses to domestic workers of all colors and some bosses actually pay for the domestic servants, children, studies and school that the domestic servants actually take advantage of uh, their bosses' kindness of. That too should be mentioned as well. Ragini Tambiran says pathetic human being behaves in this manner. They must be put behind bars. So I think a lot of people concurring with the fact that this is, you know, horrible, horrible, um, you know, actions taking place. Um, let's talk about um, the fact that what does this say about society then? Because ultimately, if we look at it within the dynamic, you have a domestic worker who, uh, by virtue of the idea of, um, and I don't know, you can date it back to colonialism if you wish, but, you know, by virtue of the fact that you have somebody who is, um, you know, dare I say, and please correct me if I'm using incorrect terminology here, but you've got somebody who is uh, seeing to your needs, basically serving you, uh, taking care of your surroundings, um, you know, providing you with the kind of um, work that you yourself do not want to do for yourself, right? That, by virtue of that, puts the domestic worker in a position of inferiority and then ultimately elevates the employer. From that perspective, what is it saying about the mindset of the employer? Is it saying that because I pay for you and you do my menial work, that I could do whatever I wish with you? You know, if you go to the Western world, uh, Padesh, uh, there are people who offer domestic services. But there isn't a class issue around domestic workers. I choose to come and vacuum your house and I charge you whatever I charge you for an hour. And that's what I'm coming to do. There's a clear job description. I come and, you know, do your laundry. I come and do your ironing or whatever it is. And, um, you know, we have a contract. You pay me. And so it doesn't have to be like this, you know. 
it, it's about attitude. It's not about the structure of the relationship itself, you know. It's about attitude because this work can be done. That's why domestic work is so expensive when you go to European countries, you know. It's unaffordable to, uh, to most people. And that's because there isn't a class dimension to it. So I think we need to think about what is, what is domestic work? Is it really about, uh, you know, uh, somebody, uh, what, what does it mean to procure domestic services? Let me put it like that. What does it mean to procure domestic services? And um, for those that are offering the domestic services, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's a financial arrangement. You know, I'm offering you something you are paying me. They should not be a, a hierarchy issue, you know. So I think, um, again, it comes down to our attitude. And it's not about the employer-employee relationship necessarily. Shocking to say the least. Well, I think then, I think we're going to end off on this point of asking you, um, what can domestic workers do now? I mean, surely you've, you know, you've made uh, many aware of this through the study. What recourse could they take? And I'm talking about from a practical perspective, you know, literally while going about doing their duties and at the same time, um, you know, should they find themselves in a position of violation? What is the legal infrastructure that they could turn to? I think, um, you know, first of all, just to mention that, you know, government exists and government exists as a regulator. So um, any relationship between private citizens, you know, government has a responsibility to provide some sort of regulation and framework. So uh, we need laws. We need laws that are going to be able to protect domestic workers in a meaningful way. But beyond that, I think we need to continue with rights education. Domestic workers need to know and understand what sexual violation is. And they must be bold enough or emboldened to go and report it, you know. Because when they don't, we have seen some of the devastating psychological, you know, impacts that that can have. Because you carry this for a long period because you're, you're afraid of losing your job. So my word to, to, to domestic workers is we're not, uh, you know, blind to the pragmatism about losing your, your source of livelihood. But, you know, your source of livelihood is important today, but your life and how, you know, your, your, your psychological well-being is is important beyond just today. So I would urge them to please report when this happens, the sooner the better, and, you know, the earlier the better, rather. And, um, you know, they must not just report to their employers. They must go to the law enforcement agents and they must bring it to their attention so that we start to collectively deal with this, with this problem as a, as a society. What about those people who are then aware of domestic workers being violated and uh, wanting to stand up? Um, you know, those who actually do have domestic workers and they view this. You know, it could be possibly a wife watching, um, you know, improper conduct between her spouse and um, the domestic worker or her child and the domestic worker, vice versa. Um, you know, what should they do? Oh, you know, they should be honest with themselves. You know, it's one thing to just chase the domestic worker away, but she's a victim too, you know. So I think, you know, again, there's that level of consciousness that needs to, that we need, uh, you know, uh, that needs to happen amongst us to say, if you witness something like this, you have a duty to help the victim in that situation and not side with the perpetrator. So I would urge people who, 
who experience or know of domestic workers to help them and embolden them to go and report or to go and you know uh, 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 provide them the necessary support to get them to go and report because ultimately it's about the domestic workers themselves taking responsibility for for reporting and bringing it to uh, the, the authorities' attention. Thank you so much for sharing this topic with us. We really appreciate it. Uh, Bongiwe Andondo, the Executive Director of the Hlanganisa Institute of Development in Southern Africa. I think definitely an insightful study you've conducted there and we thank you for you know alerting us to it. Thank you very much. We'll stay in touch and definitely look at two more issues like this. I'll go through to um, some more WhatsApp messages before we go on to the next aspect of our conversation. Rohini says, Namaste Taresh, this is a serious issue concerning domestic workers and should be addressed immediately. Mala says, good afternoon, the sexual abuse by white bosses is shocking and many of these domestic workers chose to remain silent about the abuse with the fear of losing their jobs. As a result, they are punished. Um and violated and tormented by their bosses. This is a sad reality. Uh, chapter 2 says there, was an, there, was, there has to be an act or bill in place to protect the rights of domestic helpers. Changing the behavior or mindsets of employers guilty of abuse is necessary. Thank you. Ryan says it's so sad, but here is the thing. I understand and sympathize with the ones that have been violated. How do we, key, how do we help the offenders? Surely we need to get the root of the problem and fix it out from there. Definitely what a lot of people say. Um, and, and yeah, uh, we've got BB, um, sorry, Viji says it's an old story happened to BB, uh, biblical times. Sorry, I'm just not batting to read this happened in biblical times. Um, yeah, and I think, uh, well, we're going to shift it now to the 1860 time. And we've often heard of a lot of, um, struggle and tragedy that, um, workers in the indentured um in, in the farms of the indentured um indenturers sorry have um dealt with and the like this often ended up in suicide sorry i'm just going through whatsapp here there's just there's a lot of messages coming through distracting me a slight <laughs> so yes and we've often heard of the kind of um trauma inflicted upon the women who worked in the sugarcane fields by the colonial um bosses and employers and uh it was often you know documented narrated and i think it was just horrific horrific to hear and see i uh, like many said it's not a new story but i think the fact that it's still happening today and as we build up to the 1860 time it's important to um to look into it and um you know i was talking to rachel yesterday when we were discussing and having our planning meeting on to how to discuss this and I think Zakira from Johannesburg hit the nail on the head when she said during a time of Navratri to talk about this and to realize that this is what women on a daily basis go through, that is the shocking part. So when we come back, we speak to Sylvia Garib. She needs no introduction, uh, illustrious author, and we'll talk to her about uh, the 1860 time in this regard. Stick with Afternoon Express every weekday at 5pm on SABC3. It's all about COVID-19 awareness and preventing the spread on Monday. Make a scrumptious meal alongside our chefs for our famous Tuesday cook-along. We're shining a light on breast cancer awareness on Wednesday. We turn our attention to nature and earth on Thursday. And we're getting down with Master KG, Nom Lebo and Zando Zokuza on Friday. It's all on Afternoon Express.
Join SABC3 every Saturday at 7 p.m. for The Greatest Dancer with your hosts, Alicia Dixon and Jordan Banjo. Contestants go through the auditions with judges Otimabuse, Matthew Morrison and Cheryl, each choosing three previously undiscovered dance acts to mentor. Don't miss the excitement of the auditions and the dance-offs every Saturday at 7 p.m. only on SABC3. This Tuesday evening at 7.30 on SABC3, join us for the Insider Essay as we celebrate pioneers. Meet Laduma Kokolo, the creative mind behind knitwear brand Maklosa Africa. Discover environmentally friendly cosmetics made with beeswax in the Western Cape. And spend a day with music producer and entrepreneur DJ Shimza. That's the Insider Essay, Tuesday evening at 7.30. Repeat Saturday nights at 8 only on SABC3. October is Mental Health Awareness Month. At some point in their life, one in four people will be affected by mental illness. This is clinical psychologist Viwe Dweba. This Mental Health Awareness Month, it is so important for us to take care of our psychological well-being. You know, depression and anxiety are two of the most common mental health struggles that many of us will have at least once in our lifetime. And it's so much more common than we think it is. And it's so important to seek help because, of course, our mental health is the foundation upon which our lives are built. If we can't be fully present and enjoy what it is that we are living for and working for, then life doesn't feel like it's worth living. So it's important for us to not judge each other, not judge ourselves, and to seek help when it is that we need help. Around 80% of people with mental illnesses don't receive treatment. Take care of your mental health and reach out for assistance if you are battling with a mental illness. Lotus FM. Yeah. Yeah. Share the experience. Newsbreak Talk, and we are talking about a report that was released about the state of sexual abuse and gender-based violence against domestic workers. So we're shifting that conversation now, and we are talking, we, you know, building up to the 1860 time, it's going to be 160 years since the arrival of Indians to South Africa, a time that you commemorate a lot and reflect a lot on the gains made uh, in South Africa. And we decided to, you know, add a level of that to the conversation who better than to speak to Sylvia Garib, a renowned author and researcher, scholar on the topic, author of Banjara. And I think it's very apt today that we speak to her uh, during Navratri. She's also the author of Rat of Kali. So definitely wonderful to have you on the program. Ms. Garib, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Suresh. It's great to be with you. And I must say I was shocked with the topic earlier on Bongiva, I think we must all be grateful for her for bringing this out into the open, and I hope sincerely that something's going to be done about it. Most However, definitely. talking about the indentured laborers, um, I must just go back a little bit so that there's a better understanding of But ma'am, before you do that, actually, I want hmm. to stop you there, and I want to say, uh, in front of everybody, in front of everybody listening right now, you know, there have been times when I've attended your works and your your discourses and your readings, and I don't know if it's just the way you write or if it's just the way you speak or whether this is actually the crux of the story, but you have reduced me to, I think, 
I can't even explain it. It's a plethora of rage versus immense sadness versus a, a, a lack of comprehension right down to an immense you know sadness when you narrate the stories of what women went through during the 1860 time so i'd like to thank you for that no you're welcome Therese. it does bring a tear to many people's eyes because the stories were that sad and you know to talk about it now especially with the descendants of the indentured laborers when they hear these stories it's just hearing them but you know with someone like me i had my grandmother who was actually an indentured laborer. So a lot of information came right from the horse's mouth, if you know what I mean. And uh, the story she told also reduced me to tears. And I've carried this with me throughout my life. And this is why I think I'm so passionate about Indian indenture. But uh, coming back to... Yes, please. Women folk, you know, the problem just didn't start here in our country, in the port of Natal. They were very, very unhappy people, and they had a bad life from wherever they came from as well. Uh, during that time of British rule, things were really, really horrific in that country. Everything was just taken over, stolen, and looted, and you know the rest. But uh, as you already know, the flourishing sugar industry was built on the backs of Indian indentured laborers. And sugar production was labor-intensive, and the local African population refused to work on the plantations for a wage and under contract. They were very proud people. As the industry desperately needed laborers, the Indian indenture seemed to be the answer. However, at that time, only adult Indian males were considered for indenture. The invitation was, at that point in time, not extended to Indian women, as they were considered to be of little use in the production of sugar. But they also, changed that, didn't they, ma'am, when they came through did. to the fields? How did they change Correct. that? Correct. They did change. The law changed. And uh, when that happened, they were allowed to recruit a certain number. But also, traditionally and culturally, women were not allowed to work let alone work abroad. However, when the law changed, it was grudgingly and with suspicion that only 40 women for every 100 men were recruited. The resentment and fear to recruit more was basically related to reproduction and the permanence of the Indian population. They deemed this to be an unnecessary complication in the social fabric of Nepal. In other words, they were too scared the population of the Indians yeah, would outgrow yeah. the white population. Yeah, yeah. That was basically their fear. And, but uh, but, but mm-hmm. let, let's focus, ma'am, on, on the hardships that these women faced by the colonial oppressors. Now, tying it into what Bongiwe was talking about, where you know you have people, you have women who are um, your laborers and... According to the report, they are treated as you know the, the employers wish. What did mm-hmm. Indian women have to go through during that time? A lot, a lot. Uh, you know, we read about it, but to actually uh, witness what's going on now and then compare it to what went on then, there's, there's so much that is similar in nature. Because I think a lot of this happened because of the control of men over women, even at that time. Now, the resilient woman who agreed to go abroad 
they grabbed the opportunity to leave the motherland and did so with much anticipation of a better life. But did they get a better life when they came here? Certainly not. Their dreams were built around the lies that were told by the recruiters and they told. So their problems started right there and it was transferred across when they came here. They were promised good homes, good pay, good food and treatment. They were told that there would be gold on the streets for the picking and they, they could even go home for the weekends. Now, what a cheat that is, right? Mm, who mm. can go home to India over a weekend? Now, who could blame these poor illiterate women for being sucked into the system? Their lives in their own country, governed by restrictive customs and traditions, were of a severe nature and hardship and misery. So any opportunity to escape that was welcome. And that is how they happened to land up on our shores. Yeah. And they also had a terrible, terrible time uh, when on the journey getting here. Uh, it was during the time of recruitment of men folk from the hinterland into the army and maybe by the British that left the remaining villages devastated. Most men died leaving behind widows. Now, these widows were treated very, very shabbily by the in-laws. And they were exploited, ill-treated, raped, starved, and robbed of their rights. Their properties, which rightfully belonged to them, left to them by their husbands, was taken away by their in-laws, and the widows were thrown out of their homes. So you would find that a lot of women folk that did join the indenture were widows, and hundreds of women, together with fallen women and widowed child brides from the villages, walked for days along the pilgrim's route to beg for arms and find yeah. shelter and solace yeah. in ashrams and temples. Yeah. But, you know, even there, even at these sacred places, they were taken advantage of by yeah. the priests and their accomplices. Yeah. There is so much more to the sufferings of these women. Absolutely. And, you know, we would need lots of time Most to Most definitely. And I think we must definitely make that time at a point. But let's talk, and yeah. I know you mentioned about suicide. A lot of Indian yeah. women violated by the colonial oppressors, sexually violated, yeah. and it drove them to suicide. Talk to me about that, because that's the that seems to be something that is still taking place here today in South Africa. Yes, yeah. sure. Okay. Now, the suicides actually belong on their journey on the ship getting here. Because what happened on that journey was the men folk and the ship's crew took advantage of all these women. Although they were separated by flimsy fabrics, uh, separating the single from the married couples, these men folk found a way to the cabins and dragged them up. I'm going to tell you about the one incident. There was a young couple on board and uh, a group uh, of people, um, crew members, grabbed hold of the wife of this newly married couple and, you know, gang raped her. And he couldn't handle this of what happened. And she couldn't handle it. So after the incident, she jumped overboard and he came up to look for her, couldn't find her. And somebody told him what had happened and he jumped overboard as well. And then after they landed here, they they suffered terribly, terribly. And because they were just a few in number, 40 to every 100 males, uh, there was a demand for them, demand for them to clean other workers, male workers' huts, demand for them to work in the fields, demand for them to do domestic work. And they were rushed off the feet every minute of the day. And what happened was in the fields, the, the women folk were given the most unskilled jobs to do. For example, they worked as... Um, uh, weeders, 
they did weeding between the rows and rows of sugarcane plantation, and then they were requested to plant beans along these rows. Now, you know that bending from dawn to dusk can only cause you harm because a lot of them ended up with hunchbacks yeah. because you're doing this all day, every day from dusk to dawn. So there was this and sort of culture. I mean, they came through to... Um work in the sugarcane plantations but they ended up doing various other things like being domestic workers uh, working in other sectors other sectors of agriculture um, and I'd imagine they had no voice to raise up against it and say but wait a second that's not part of the contract correct the contract is so basic and nothing was uh, put in writing where they could have been protected but yes they did do other work you know some of them went off to work in the tea plantations up in the north coast. Others worked on the sugarcane fields. And not that many did domestic work. But uh, eventually, uh, as the years progressed, some that had completed the indentured labor contract went on to work as domestic workers. They did gardening and all that kind of thing. But this suffering is just what I want to focus on. You know, even when they were on the boat, another... The ships that they used were ships in the old days which carried salt, transported salt to various parts of the world. And they were put into the holes of these ships. And the remnants of the salt that remained there hurt these people. They began to get rashes all over the body. And there was no medication. And the babies cried from lack of milk. The food was horrendous. And all of these things, you know, made people go into depression and caused them to take their own life. And uh, here also with them on the sugarcane plantations themselves, the cigars, they were called cigars, the people in charge of groups of indentured workers and uh, making sure that their work is done. They were also huge culprits. There was one case where a cigar had also raped a young girl that was an assistant to the cook in the kitchen. And she was also a young married girl. And he took her to his cabin with the pretext of having his, um, uh, sorry, hut clean. And that's when he raped her. And this was witnessed by an older woman who complained about it. And the next morning, they found her body hanging from a mango tree. Now, things like this really, really upset the people. They couldn't handle it anymore. And the resentment started to build up. And you couldn't escape from this kind of labor. There was nowhere to go. Because if you tried to escape... You didn't know where you wanted to go because all the plantations had indented labor. You didn't know where they were. There was no transport. And in addition to that, when the woman got pregnant, there were no clinics that they could go to or hospitals. And they delivered their babies in the woods or on the riverbanks with no help from anybody else. And then the next day, they were required to go back to work the very next day. And what did they do? They took the babies with them, laid them on a piece of cloth under the tree, and then carried on working. And oftentimes the babies died from starvation because they couldn't leave their work now and come to feed the babies. Yeah. And yeah. Ma'am, let's, let's, let's take a break then and go to some of our messages that are coming through on WhatsApp. I think there's a lot of interesting comments coming through and we can talk okay. about that as well. So let's take a break and when we come back, we go to our WhatsApp messages. Okay. Family means being there for the ones you love. 
giving them your time, your love, and of course, food. At SPA, we make it easier. We have all the services you need to pay bills or send and receive money. But more than that, we have all your essentials and products you really love at great prices every day. So you don't have to spend time running from one place to the next. You can get it all done for less at SPA. SPA, we're here for you so you can be there for your family. The sun is out and the bush babies are living their best life. Whether they are irritating their mother or playing with their brother, life is just great. But the African wild never stops being a harsh and dangerous place for these little guys. They must always watch their back. Jump on board daily with Safari Live at 3 p.m. only on SABC3. It's all about COVID-19 awareness this Monday on Afternoon Express, live at 5 p.m. on SABC3. Dr. Sibuyile Matigana gives us a COVID-19 update and tips on helping to prevent the spread of the virus. Dr. Kate Webb teaches us about a COVID-19-related condition, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And we meet the third nominee and sponsors of Brave the Next Generation. That's Afternoon Express weekdays at 5 p.m. go back to Newsbreak Talk. Almost time to wrap up now. We're going to go to some voice notes and messages before we wrap up our conversation with Ms. Sylvia, Sylvia Garib. Let's go to Mr. Ian Govender. Good afternoon, Taresh. Indians were lured to Natal to work on the sugarcane fields with the promise of a better life. The indigenous system was in fact a form of slavery. My grandmother related many revolting stories. The women were exploited they had to get up very early to work on the sugarcane fields. They were not allowed to feed their babies. They worked till late in the afternoon, got up very early to prepare the meals for the day. Women working for their masters were ill-treated. Many women committed suicide. Thank you. Yeah, such was the reality. Mrs. Nirmala Devi Mudli, hello. Good afternoon, Tarish and the Newsbreak team. I highly commend Lotus FM for their magnanimous coverage over the atrocities and hardships of our 1860 laborers who have endured all these in our South African soil. To think that it followed us now into the current uh, lifestyle living, our men, it doesn't speak very well of you. You should have had the strength, the mentality to protect and love and not to diminish these innocent women. Pray that Mother Durga will protect in all her great forms over this period of Navaratri. Thank you, Mrs. Nirmala Devi Murthy of Amkumas. Thanks for the message there, ma'am. Uh, more messages have come through. Chandra is asking, where does the domestic workers stand if they're working illegally? I think from that perspective, then it becomes a, um, a general gender-based violence issue and not necessarily a, a work issue. Uh, Pran Mahabir from Together Rail says, good afternoon, Newsbreak team. Thank you for updating us every day. Reni says, if you have some time, please go to the 1860 Heritage Centre in Derby Street and read and see some pics about the settlers. It's so sad. Yeah, Reni, I know it's quite sad to do that. I think everybody should, though. Mala says, women as indentured labourers suffered gross violation of human rights. They came to South Africa hoping to lead a better life, but unfortunately they were violated by the colonial oppressors, resulting in them committing suicide. Their suffering was ongoing, and that was the 
a sad reality. So those are the messages, Ms. Giri. But, you know, I mean, we were talking about the sexual violation of these uh, Indian indentured laborers, the females, um, what they went through being outcast by their spouses, by their families, etc. But you cannot ignore that there was a great sort of resilience. And talk to me about that. I'm surely there were some who did stand up to the colonial oppressors, right? Yeah, uh, definitely. They were very, very resilient women. And although they were in a system of uh, paid slavery, if you want to call it that, they did try to stand up for themselves. But there was this, I'm just, I'm just looking for something to talk to you about. Uh, they, some, of, some people say that these resilient women derive some benefits from the endangered migration. It offered them an escape from starvation, widowhood, widowhood stigma, prostitution, and begging. Their decision to immigrate, immigrate, and this is on their own, was testament to their independence and strength. But still, they found difficulty in finding freedom and independence while subjugated to working under false labor and male control. This was the problem. But decades on from there, things have changed to a great extent. And when indentured labor stopped in 1911, um, things started to get a whole lot better. New laws were put in place. But the whole problem in the very beginning was that there was no clarity as to how they were going to work, what they were going to be paid. It, everything was based on the lies that they told to them. And this was the big problem. Ma'am, I think to end the question, to end the point on, you mentioned to me when we were talking that it's not going to be enough and we need to sit down properly and have a conversation about this. And yes, we actually are going to do it in the build-up to November. Mm. But mm. I want to talk to you about this. Um, currently, we have this great, great, uh, severe issue of gender-based violence that I think even the president himself is so concerned about. And that was something that was very prevalent in the 1860 era from what we're talking about here, about what the Indian origin, uh, sorry, what the Indian uh, um, indentured laborers went through at the hands of their colonial oppressors. How much has changed? What has changed? And why is it so shocking that, you know, this, we still have this conversation about present-day gender-based violence? Suresh, my feeling is that we're now living in a very, very sick society. I mean, although this did have happened, uh, during the time of indenture, and perhaps also uh, those situations were not completely highlighted. I think the record-keeping was not as good as we expected it to be. But yes, there were all these things, but what I see now happening is really growth. It's uh, the, the, the quantity and the quality of the way these things are being conducted is so inhumane, uh, and I think that I wouldn't say that much has changed. Probably it hasn't, but I would say that it's happening a lot more now in a society that's so much more educated. And education plays such an important role to make you a decent citizen. And here we are with educated people uh, having to undergo things like this and then having the fear to actually disclose what is happening to you. I mean, we have, you know, uh, incest happening in homes, and uh, murders 
because of the incest or to hide the incest. So Teresh really, I think that serious action needs to be taken to resolve these matters. Wonderful. Well, Ms. Sylvia Garib, author and scholar there into the 1860 heritage, we thank you for your time. I'm going to take you up on that offer and have you in studio as best we can soon to talk about these issues at a greater level. Okay, Paris. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself. That was Ms. Sylvia Garib there talking to us about it. A quick message. Rohini says, when I visited the museum and read the stories about the indentured laborers, it was grief and heartache. I had tears in my eyes throughout the museum tour. So definitely a conversation we'll keep on the front burner as we continue to build up to November. This broadcast came your way courtesy of the team, executive producer Salma Patel and Rachel Vadi. I'll talk to you soon from me, Tadesh. Hey, have an awesome day. News break. Lotus FM. Powered by SABC News.